The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's show. Today, I'd like to welcome Canadian country rock artist Susie Corey from Toronto. Born in Bruges, Susie Corey's parents moved the family to Toronto when she was eight months old. Her mother, a devoted fan of country music, would continuously play classic country, and Susie found herself singing along. By her teens, she became exposed to hard rock, most notably Guns N' Roses. Having spent several years abroad, it was after her move back to North America and a fateful meeting with her idol and inspiration, Axl Rose, that the fire to write and perform was reignited. In 2017, Corey began writing and recording her first EP, Spellcasting, produced by John Angus MacDonald, The Truth. She released it in 2017, supporting it with a string of shows in Toronto and LA at the legendary Whiskey Agogo. Her songs received radio airplay across Canada, the United States, the Netherlands, UK, the Middle East, Brazil and New Zealand. Since 2018, Corey has released four singles, A Note to Self-Love with The Secret Garden, the upbeat autobiographical pop country Pretty Little Things, a classic country ballad Settle of the Dust, and Outlaw, a country rock tune with a music video featuring members of the rock band Puddle of Mud. In June 2020, Corey will release the bluesy gospel-inspired anthem Love Revolution, which would lead to her organizing the first ever drive-in country music festival. The Love Revolution Festival, which took place in Ontario, Canada featured seven local country artists, including Corey herself. Corey currently boasts over 150,000 streams on Spotify, 45,000 streams on YouTube, and her music can also be currently heard on Sirius XM. In addition to the music, Cora has been on music conference panels, Niagara Music Week, published articles on how to make it in the music industry, FYI, music news, and is a motivational speaker. Welcome to the show, Susie. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Simon? I'm very good. It's a pleasure to have you here. You're in Toronto, yes? I'm right about that? I am, yes. Yeah, so it was interesting, me and you trying to figure out the time so that we could be on the show together. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. Um, I get that a lot, like if I'm... If I'm talking to somebody from LA or something, you know, they're like six hours and I'm trying to work out the time difference and Toronto as well. I was like, okay, so it's an evening one for me and an, a morning one for you, you know. That's right. Yeah, but I'm good. I'm wide awake. I'm all ready for you. Brilliant. And you know what's crazy? I'm doing a, I'm doing a podcast actually uh, in a few days with somebody in Boston and they said to me, okay, 12 o'clock your time. And I was like, hold on, that's like six o'clock in the morning for you. And they were like, yeah. And I said, are you sure? And they were like, yeah. I said, okay, 12 is good for me if six is good for you. So, well, I think, so they must get up early. Well, everything that's going on now, I think people's schedules have completely changed. I've always been somebody who wakes up early, but, um, you know, cause I worked at the airlines for a very long time. So I'd have like three o'clock start where I'd start at the airport at three o'clock. So I'd be up from 2 a.m. And now I get up at five. And to me, that's like sleeping in because <laughs> for years I've gotten up very, very early. Yeah, it's not 5 a.m. in the morning is not very rock and roll. No, you know, it's like not at all. for me, you know, not that I'm very rock and roll. But I mean, for me, I'm up watching television till three and four or doing music, playing music or something. So getting up at five would be like maybe going on holidays or something. <laughs> 
Well, it's just great. And especially in the summer now, warm, the weather's warmer, it gets light outside early. So I love to get out there, get walking and just get some exercise before everybody else is up. And then you're ready for the day. And I feel like I'm so much more productive. You know, you get a lot more done. Yeah. And, you know, are you one of these people who work better, like with songs and m making music in the morning? Because I know for me, it's more of a night thing. Like sometimes I'm in bed and I'm going to go to sleep and I get a melody and I'm like, oh, no, come on. I have to get some rest. And then I'm like, will I get up? And sometimes I don't get up. And the next day I'm like, I cannot remember anything. Yeah. You know, I've learned the hard way because I have had things just I can't remember them later that immediately now, once I get something in my head, I record it in my phone. I just sing it into my phone. And, you know, so I have all these ideas there. And when I need to sit and write something, I've got stuff to go to. And I kind of remember, you know, what I was thinking along those lines. As far as time is concerned, sometimes on my walks, I get those ideas. You know, the single that I have coming out, it came to me when I was just walking. And I don't even, it wasn't like I was trying to write a song. I was just walking and I started hearing this melody in my head and again, just recorded it in my phone and, you know, it turned into a whole song. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are the best moments I find because even if you record something and you find it months later or years later and you go, oh, wow, that was actually a catchy little tune and maybe I didn't do something with it. So, you know, I was talking to a songwriter there recently and they were saying to me, oh, you know, those ideas you've stored in your phone and you never do anything with, but you're always promising, you know, you're procrastinating. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a few months. And then 10 years later, you're like, oh, this is a song from the past. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you don't want to wait too long anyways, because usually we get an idea, no. I come back, I record it in my phone, I'll get back home or somewhere that I can sit and write. And I try and write in the moment because my head is already there. And wherever that inspiration came from was just a feeling that I had. And so you try and write while you're still in that moment, as opposed to sometimes you wait too long. Yes. You don't have that same feeling anymore. Yeah. So listen, let, let's go back a little bit. We'll, we'll do a bit of a back to the future <laughs> and kind of go back to your sure. early life. So I know, obviously, you were, you were born in Beirut and you came to Toronto. What age were you when you relocated to Toronto? I was eight months old, so I was a baby. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I never really lived there, you know, after being born, but... I grew up in Toronto, and then years later, as an adult, I ended up moving back to the Middle East, and I lived there for 13 years. Not in Lebanon, in Amman, Jordan, but, um, you know, it was, it's was it been an interesting life. <laughs> wow. So, obviously, um, both of your parents are from Beirut as well, no? My father's Palestinian. My mother's Lebanese. There's so much trouble, obviously, happening in Palestine that my father went to Lebanon, and that's where he met my mom. And they got married. And then all of a sudden there was, you know, war happening in Lebanon. And they are like, okay, we need to leave the whole Middle East. And they ended up coming to Canada. And lucky for me, I grew up here and, you know, in a peaceful country and where everything's great. So very thankful for that. And, and you know, when, when you say like the Lebanon, that's a very synonymous with a lot of um, Irish army personnel. Because for years and still now to this day, there's been a lot of Irish soldiers who go on peacekeeping missions to the Lebanon. And I, I know quite a few army personnel who have been in the Lebanon on two or three different tours and peacekeeping missions there and everything. So it's it's one of those, you can say other places like Beirut, other places, but the minute you say the Lebanon, an Irish person thinks, oh, I know an army guy that's over there, you know, or has been. 
So it's quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, the whole Middle East is an interesting place. And it's unfortunate that there's always been kind of conflict in the area. You know, I'm a very peaceful person and I can't imagine living under those circumstances for so many years. And, you know, I hope that one day we can have true peace in the whole region there. And in the meantime, you know, I'm very thankful for being in North America because you see the flip side of it here where we just we live and enjoy our lives and don't have, you know, sometimes there even the most basic things in life are difficult because there's so much other things going on that you're just you're trying to survive. And we don't face that here. And so like what what age were you when you went back there to live? You said you went back and lived there for 13 years. What age did you go back at? I was about 23 or 24. So I was old enough. And um, you know, I ended up getting married, having my kids there. So my in the Middle East. And then about five, six years ago, I moved back to North America. And, you know, I wanted my kids to also know what it's like to live here in North America. And they were teenagers and getting into high school and things like that. So, you know, I, I think it was a great decision because I wanted them to, they had the life there. They saw what it's like. We had a lot of family around. It's fantastic. No regrets whatsoever. But I, for me, it was time to move back. To me, this is home, even though I'm of Middle Eastern descent, but North America and Canada is, is home for me. And, you know, when you went back at 23 to mm-hmm. Beirut, it, like, was it very hard to adjust? Because I can imagine, you know, being in Toronto and, and you know, like it's like people in America, Canada, Europe, we we suffer from you know first world problems, you know, like not having <laughs> luxurious things or not having basic things. But for other places, they're like that's not basic, that's a luxury. So when you went over there, did you have to completely adapt your life and go without lots of things that would be a basic thing in Toronto? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say go without it. We did have everything available, but in limited quantities, I would say. So for example, something like water, you know, you really ration it and how you use it. And you could only shower so many times. You could only wash, you know, clothing. So so it was really interesting to have lived in life where we have so much of everything here. And in so many respects, we do waste a lot. You know, we probably use more than we need to. But then to go to somewhere else where you're doing the exact opposite and having to ration everything and also while raising small kids. And, you know, it was interesting. Having said that, did I find it difficult? No, only because I'm a very, I adapt to every circumstance. You know, I've worked in airlines and I've traveled a lot around the world. I love being in different places and I have no issue adapting to different environments because to me, it's all part of learning, you know, and you'll never understand the world unless you experience it firsthand because you can read about it and people can tell you about it but until you've traveled to different places and lived it you'll never understand it and for me I appreciate that because even now I take all of that experience that I had there and I feel like I know so much more and it changed me as a person as a human being and I'm thankful for so many things that maybe a lot of people who haven't left North America wouldn't understand they're like what's the big deal about having water you know like, no, it's a big deal. <laughs> a big deal, yeah. And and can I ask you, obviously, right now with the tensions between Israel and Palestine, in being uh, of Middle Eastern descent in America and Canada, like, because you're kind of working in both, do you, is there a different air? I mean, for example, in, in Canada right now, between Israeli people and Palestine people who have 
who live there now or, you know, second generation or whatever. What is the, the tension or the air like? Are, are people kind of taking out stuff on each other? Are they saying, oh, you know, you're at fault? What, what is the political situation like in North America? I mean, I don't know if I'm necessarily the best person to answer that question, only because my view of the world is one that, you know, I was mentioning earlier. I'm just a very peaceful person. I believe in love. I believe in people loving and caring for each other. To me, irrespective of where you're from, you know, I traveled to Israel several times. I've dealt with, you know, Jewish people my entire life and had nothing but great experiences. So it saddens me to see what's happening. Is there injustice happening? For sure. Is it, you know, I mean, it's so much larger than me as a person to speak to that because I haven't lived it firsthand. So I can't, even though I am half Lebanese, half Palestinian, I can't speak to it because I haven't lived it. But someone else who's living there firsthand can say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And so I think we have to be very careful in giving our opinions on those things. Because personally, I've, you know, I went to Yaffa and to Tel Aviv, and I saw Palestinians and Jewish people coexisting and living and having no problem. My family, uh, some of them live in Nazareth. And I went and spent about two weeks there with them. And same thing, you know, you have Jewish and Palestinian people living together with no issues and working together. That to me, it's unfortunate what we see happening on the world stage at such a large scale now, because really when it comes down, forget about governments and the political side of things, actual human beings, the individuals, the people, they do want peace and they do want to coexist together. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have to realize Nothing belongs to anyone. None of us own anything on this earth. You know, we're going to be gone. All you can do is try and make life easier for everybody around you and coexist and love each other and take care of each other. And I don't think anybody has to fight for anything because does it, you know, nobody's going to have any piece of land for themselves. You're on this earth and then you go. <laughs> You know, no, and like you know, like obviously, it, it, we we had the same situation in Ireland with Northern Ireland and and the, you know the terrorism and and the the Protestants and the Catholics, and it's something after a while that a generation just goes, look, we don't want this anymore. We want to get on with our lives. We want to coexist, and we it's not about that's my piece of land or you go march by my house or you do this thing. People are like, this is just something from the Middle Ages, you know, let's just love each other, let's get on with it. And I mean, I think there is hope for those kind of places. And the the most unfortunate thing, I think, in any of those, and I'm not a very political person, but I think the worst thing is you have always, always somebody stirring it. So there's always like somebody, whether it's the CIA or whether it's governments, stirring situations. And like, you know, they, like they always say, if you put a beetle and an ant in a jar, until you shake the jar, nothing will happen. Yeah. You understand? And there's always somebody shaking the jar in these kind of countries. And that's the shame because you you know firsthand those people coexist and they live. And there are families that are half and half and they live. But all of a sudden, somebody puts this divide between them and makes it impossible for them to coexist. Right. And, you know, you have to question what the agendas are and why that's happening. So there's a lot more behind it, and yeah, it doesn't come down to the individual because I do believe that you know whether on the Palestinian side or on the Israeli side, people do want to live in peace and they want to live together and they're fine with that. But like you're saying, you know, there's a lot more hands in the pot that are stirring the pot and causing other things to happen. So. Hopefully, things will work out. So let's let's change tack a little, and we'll let me talk to me a little about like growing up in Toronto, you know, because. 
I mean, I've never been to Toronto, wow. but I know it's an amazing city. And my my sister has been there and said it's amazing. And um, it, like Toronto, I imagine, has a lot going for it. And I mean, there's so much facilities and a great infrastructure. And, and I'm sure, were, were you in the city or are you outside in the country area? What was the place like you lived? Yeah, no, I've always grown up right in the city. And even to this day, I'm right in the city. And I love it. You know, I love the hustle bustle of it. It's a big city. But with a hometown feel, because people are so kind. I'm sure you've heard that. You know, Canadians are they're amazing yes, people. Yes. It's very multicultural. We've got every kind of nationality, which was interesting to me when I moved to the Middle East and everybody was Middle Eastern, that I found it strange. To me, that was weird to live in a country where it's all kind of one nationality, because I grew up in an environment where, you know, my friends were every nationality you could imagine. I had like the United Nations for my, you know, friends. And I enjoyed that and I loved it because that's how you get to know other cultures and other foods and, um, you know, family traditions and things that people do. And I think the more we can understand that, the better we are as human beings and the better quality of life we have with each other. When you were growing up as a teenager, um, like, were you rebellious? Were you a good girl? Were you, what kind of child, what kind of teenager were you? I was trying to be Axl Rose and then my parents would put me in my place and I'd listen. So I was a good girl, you know, but having said that, you mentioned Guns N' Roses. I've always said they are the reason that I ever wanted to become a performer and get into music. And when I was 13, it was my first concert. I went to go see them. They were my favorite band. And that changed everything for me, you know, seeing that and feeling what a live show felt like and the energy of a band like that. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And it was so clear to me. But unfortunately, my parents didn't feel the same way when I told them this is what I want to do. Yeah, they said, no, <laughs> you're not going to do that. And that's when I made the decision to follow my <laughs> other passion, which was music. And, you know, uh, not music, I'm sorry, my other passion, which was aviation and travel. I wanted to see the world. And, you know, that's when I started my career in aviation and did really well and worked my way up the corporate ladder. And I ended up in the Middle East managing a British station for British Airways there. So, you know, it's, yeah. Wow. And there's an interesting story behind that that's related to England. Um, Kate Middleton, her dad was the station manager for British Airways in Amman, where I was. And it was, I think, 20 years later that I, I had his position. So that was funny when I found out that he was the station manager at the same station that I was managing like 20 years earlier. Yeah. Wow. So, so it was a world of princesses. <laughs> sure. So yeah, he was, he was probably somebody said to him, are you, um, are you happy now that you're the father of like a princess? And he goes, right. I've had princesses around <laughs> me all my life. <laughs> I work for British Airways. <laughs> There's a friend of mine, actually, and herself and her husband, she's a Spanish woman, and she worked for British Airways as an air hostess for years. And uh, she, herself and her husband, he was an air host or, you know, a, a steward, and they met uh, working, and sometimes they'd be working on the same flights. So it's really funny, you know, when people work together and end up as a couple from that word. Well, a lot of people do because, you know, the airline is so large, there's hundreds of employees and you see so many people, you're bound to meet your partner through that. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't end up well. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. You know, being in aviation, it's such a great, here we are to talk about music and I'm talking about the airlines, but I do. No, no, well, no, but, but I, I want to hear about this because for me, uh, this isn't a normal interview. I don't just 
I don't just focus on the music. We, I want to see what makes the person tick. And I, I love getting to the root of what they used to yeah. do and, you know, things they were into. That's the kind of stuff that's not in normal right. interviews, you know. So for me, it's really interesting to hear, you know, who you were before you, who you are now and what made you decide right. to change, you know. So when, when you, like, as you said, that time when you were really into Guns N' Roses and they were influencing you hugely and your parents, I can imagine from what you were saying, they were kind of strict and they were saying, well, hold on, we don't want our daughter, our princess to be a rocker and up there duetting with Alex <laughs> Axel Rose. So go in this direction and we'll, we'll give you our blessing. So you had a kind of lot of, um, you had to revolt against that a little bit and get your dream in the end. Yeah, I mean, the irony is that I put that to the side. I ended up getting married, having two boys and raising my children. I really focused on that. And, you know, not regrettably, I don't feel like some people are like, oh, if only I had started earlier. I'm like, no, you know, I believe that whatever your fate is in life and your road that you choose, you have to stick to it and give it 100%. And so I'm very proud of the fact that I ended up having my children. I still worked my way up the corporate ladder in the airlines. I got to experience unbelievable things, you know, in my life. And, but it happened that when I moved back to North America, I started going to shows again and the music bug just came to me. And then there was an incident in particular that happened that changed everything. And it was that my birthday was coming up and I decided um, on a whim to go to Los Angeles and go find Axl Rose. That's all I wanted for my birthday. People do that all the time. Hey mom, I'm just going to look for Axl Rose. If I don't meet him, I'll probably find Slash, you know? No, but I knew I was going to meet him. I had a gut feeling. And so literally, I flew to L.A., drove to his home, and there he was. I saw him in the street walking. So, you know, talk about late. Wow. Yeah, and that, for me, changed everything. I, you know, I talk a lot about that story, and I'm not going to go into details. But really, what's important to note is it made me understand that if I really believed something wholeheartedly, I could make it happen. And I mean, that was about the craziest thing I could have told people. And the fact that it happened. I know you don't want to go into details, but I have to ask, like, were you thinking to yourself, okay, I see him across the street. He's on the sidewalk. If I go over now, I could have a restraining order against me in a week. Or do I take a chance and, you know, or he's like, oh, another crazy person and coming over to stalk me or whatever. So, like, were you thinking, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go for it. I didn't even think. That's all I can say. You know, you don't have time to think. Because I was literally driving up a canyon road, so there is no sidewalk. It's the canyon. Yeah. And you're driving up like two minutes from his house. But he was walking. He was doing, like, exercise. He was in shorts and everything. Yeah, and I, I didn't even see the front of him. I saw the back of him, but I saw his leg. And he has a tattoo on his leg that I know. Yeah. Yes, yes. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, there he is. And so I just drove up next to him and, you know, put the window down and said, hi, I don't want to scare you, but I've come all the way from Toronto. It's my birthday. And I just wanted to get in the car. (laughs) (laughs) And he just chuckled. He laughed. He thought it was funny. And he's like, did you say Toronto? I said, yeah, I flew in from Toronto. And all of you know, if possible, I'd like a picture. And he's like, yeah, just drive up to my driveway. We'll take a picture up there. I was like, wow. Yeah, nice. he was super, super nice. Really great guy. And that was, that was kind of, was that during the whole Chinese democracy recluse kind of period? It was after that. So it's after the, yeah, it was, after it was that. literally, I think two to three weeks before they announced the Guns N' Roses um, that they were reuniting. 
So it was you. It was you. Well, that's now what I told people. I said, yeah, I spoke to Axel. I said, come on, Axel. It's been too long. Get back to Slash and Doc. Let's do this. And he listened to me. Here was me. I sent an email. I always thought it was my email. But now I know. Now I know it was really you. It was me. Yeah. Okay. Because so, I thought I was a good email writer, but I'm not so confident now. That's okay. I ruined it for you. You can keep thinking it was you. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that, but that's really cool. I mean, and, you know, sometimes in life, those moments, you just take them and, and it can inspire you and make you go on to do, you know, better things, you know. But one question, just going back to when you were in aviation. So obviously you worked your your way up through the ranks and so on. But one thing, like when when you see, for I don't know, were you an air hostess or were you working in the offices all the time? But sometimes when you see the air hostesses or the air stewardesses, and you know they're very well dressed, especially like the Emirates, you know, very very well dressed, and uh, you can't you can't kind of imagine some of them being rock chicks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, people to this day, I mean, when I came back to, so I wasn't an air hostess, I was in the airport, I was a manager at the airport. So, you know, even more so, you have to be very professional. And I've got that business side to me. Like, yes, I've got the side that could be on stage and rocking, and, you know, I love rocking. And yeah, I yeah. have no inhibition when I'm on stage, but I have a flip side. You see me and I'm in a suit and, you know, very professional and dealing with, like I ended up coming back to Canada and working for another airline here, Air Canada. And I was a manager of the premium product, which is our top tier customers, you know, the VIPs and all of that. And so it helped me to be very well-spoken and know how to deal, manage the business side of things, you know, and now that's helping me even in music because a lot of artists, they're great at the art side, but maybe not so great at the business side of things. Whereas I've been able to manage both things and I think it's really come to serve me because I know how to speak to people, how to reach out to people, how to write proper emails. I write my own press release, you know, whatever it is, I'm good to do it because I have that business experience. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And, you know, you, that's a very good point because a lot of great musicians, actors, everything, they're really good, creative people. But what happens is when it comes to the business side of it, they let somebody else manage it. And sometimes that doesn't go so well because they get ripped off or there's decisions made on their behalf that don't work out so well. But it's great that you had all of that business sense behind you, you know, like as a, a great wall behind you. And obviously then moving into the music industry, you're like, no, no, I can handle that. I can look after that. A lot of artists don't have that. And and it's because of the way they came up through the ranks and had to learn the hard way. Right. And, you know, I hope that soon I will have so much success that I will need a manager and people to do those things for me. But the difference is once you have that team, if you've already done it yourself, you know what they need to be doing. And so I can check on what people are doing and if they're doing it correctly because I've done it myself and I know how it needs to be done. Whereas I think if you have, especially people who have early success and have other people doing stuff for them, they I've talked to very well-known artists who know, have no idea about the business side of it because they're, they have people to deal with all that. But you know, sometimes giving it all away to other people and not having that communication with them and understanding what are people doing for you Things can happen, maybe like you're saying, it could be mismanaged and you have no idea, you know, because you're not questioning what's being done. Yes, yes. And, you know, that's the thing, because if a manager tells a young artist or even middle-aged artist who doesn't have a clue 
well, no, this is the best way to go. You know, trust me on this. And this is the best decision. I have experience. They're like, okay, I'll trust you, whatever. But if you know, okay, well, this is not a good decision. You can say to them, listen, I'm not green. I, I know what, what should be happening here. And if you can't even make those basic decisions for me and I can't trust you, well, then you can't be my manager. So I think that's the great advantage you have now that when, when you do go to hand the reins over, you're going to really be picky and choosy about who you, you know, choose for your, your manager and for your, you know, doing all those tasks, no? Yeah, well, you know, I think I needed to understand myself first. I needed to know who am I, what's the kind of musical style that I want to do, what's my look like, you know, and I try and be as natural as I can. I mean, with the exception of my latest music video where I have pink hair. Other than that, I mean, that's just me poking fun at things. But I think I try and be as genuine as I can. And I think had someone come in early on, I did have people come and approach me wanting to be managers, you know, managing me. And I said, no, not yet, because I need to figure out who I am so that when someone comes in to manage me, I'm already clear on my vision of who I am. I don't want someone deciding, well, you need to look like this. Your social media should be like this. Well, I now have a clear idea of what I want it to be. And I really go with my gut instinct. And I think I've worked on that for so long that now, even if I was to work with someone, I will always trust my gut instinct. Whatever that's telling me is what I'll make sure that we're doing. Yes. And, you know, recently I had a guest on the podcast. He was a, like an Irish type of folk country, kind of Irish country singer. But he, he, he lost his wife and his wife was his manager. And... So what happened was then he had all these other people calling him to be his manager because he was successful. But he said he, you know, he said he couldn't because he, you know, he trusted his wife. His wife knew every part of his act and everything. So in the end, he actually, you know, a few months or a year or two later, when he kind of got back into the scene, he actually asked a friend of his who, who was never a music manager, but a guy he really trusted. And he said to him, look, I know you're not a music manager, but I believe you can become a good music manager from what I know of you. But the most important thing is I trust you. And that's what's important to me. Trust. Because, you know, somebody can say, I have all the, I have the network. I have the little black book, but you're kind of like, yeah, but are you a good person? Can I trust you? Are you looking out for my best interests? And that's what's important. Yeah. You know, people have agendas and sometimes it's not so clear in the beginning and you find out later. Either way, again, it comes down to trusting your gut instinct about people. If I just get a vibe about someone, you know, that doesn't sit well with me, I will easily walk away regardless of who that person is. Even if it's someone very influential in the music industry, I've met a lot of people and I know they could have done things for me, but I know it would have happened in a way that wouldn't leave me happy. And I don't want that. You know, there's a cost to everything. And I think when you have to make those decisions, you got to make sure that the decision you're taking is makes you feel good and you can sleep at night, you know, with a clear head and a clear conscience. When you were, obviously you were a huge Guns N' Roses fan, but when it comes to, you know, female artists as well, who inspired your voice and the way you sang, um, were there, was, was there like certain artists, you know, um, like Joan Jett or people that you kind of thought, I like that. That's who I want to be. Besides Axel Rose, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely Joan Jack, because I just think she's so badass. You know, she's just, she is who she is, and that's it. There's yeah. no explanation needed. And I've always loved Stevie Nicks. She's one of my favorites. Yeah. And I mean, not that I sound like her, because I don't think anybody can sound like her, but Janis Joplin was one of my favorites as well. 
Oh, brilliant. Yeah, really good singer. Yeah, those are people I look up to. And, you know, Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt, um, Dolly Parton. And, you know, there's so many uh, different array of vocalists that I love. But I think at the end of the day, the important thing is to take what you like from them. But in the end, you have to find your own voice. And, you know, working with my current producer, um, his name is Brent Woods, and he's down in Los Angeles. He's incredible. He's the person that really taught me that find your voice. Stop trying to be all these people that, you know, you can admire people, but don't try and be them. Because the only way you're ever going to truly connect with people is by being 100% yourself and finding what your voice is. Because that also makes you unique. You know, when people hear you, they're like, oh, that's so-and-so. You know, some of the greatest voices in the world doesn't necessarily have to be the best voice, but it's so unique because it's just so specific to that person. You know that's Stevie Nicks or, you know, that's Linda Ronquad. Or Elton John, that's Elton John. You know, it's so... Yeah, yeah, like, the thing about it is, you know, nowadays, obviously, it's a mixture of style, image, everything. But the voice is still important. And, you know, you can hear the best technical singers, but they can bore you. And the thing is, you might hear somebody singing who doesn't have the best voice, but has a certain rasp or a certain kind of an element to their voice. And that person can become a huge star. And people could say... But they're not even that good a singer. And it's, a, it's not about the singing. It's about their songs. It's about their, their, you know, their character. People look at them and go, this guy or girl is really interesting. So you don't have to be Celine Dion, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I mean, look at Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen. You know, these were not yeah. great singers necessarily, but just the emotion and the rawness and there's something genuine and honest in that. And that's how you touch people. So for me, I'll take performance over perfection any day. I've always said that you don't want to be lousy. You know, you don't want to go out there and do a horrible yeah, of job. Course, of course. But am I going to think about every note that I'm singing? No, because then I'm going to lose the fun in it. And people are going to lose the fun. People don't listen to every single, oh, wait, wait a second. She went sharp there, you know? Like what I'm curious is all those years you were in the aviation industry and there was a, there was like a rock star waiting to jump out, you know? You were trying to shed your skin. And it was like, what? how did you, you know, how did you control it in the sense that, did you get very frustrated at times? And, you know, were you were you kind of in karaoke bars and, and a few nights out thinking, I should be doing this? I mean, because I can imagine for a long time you were thinking, I do love what I'm doing, but I know what I want to do. And, and obviously it took you a few years to get to that point. So did you have like an outlet? Were you singing with any cover bands or were you doing any type of singing? Well, it's funny because, you know, like I was saying to you that when I got into it, motherhood, being a mom and working full time in the airlines, I was so focused on that. I had no time to think about, you know, to me, the whole music and idea of having a career in the industry was not something I was even thinking of. And it's so funny that just in the last couple of years before I moved back to Canada in Jordan, I went to this, it was just for fun. It was a singing competition. And people were like, are you silly? You know, you, you, what are you doing going to a singing competition? I said, I don't care. You know, it's for fun. So I just went for fun. Well, while I was at the singing competition, I did make it into the competition. And my band finished like fifth place. But besides that, one of the judges was in radio. And she said, you know what? Your voice is great for radio. You should come and try out. And we'll have you do some commercials and stuff. 
And so just by accident, I got into radio and doing commercials and doing, you know, I do voiceovers for documentaries and things like that. And eventually I was given my own radio show. So I was doing the airline thing during the week. Wow. And on weekends, I had a radio show. And I thought that was so cool because it was my one little corner where I'm doing something that involves music, even though I wasn't myself making music. But, you know, here I was hosting a radio show, which was really cool. And but then it didn't really change for me, like I said, until I got back to North America, had that incident happen with Axl Rose. That changed everything. I went, you know what? That was such a crazy thing in my mind. And I made it happen. Well, I need to revisit this whole thing of being a musician. I don't care. I have nothing to lose. I'm going to give it a try. And so while I was working with the airline, I started, you know, going up, like you're saying, to bars. And we have, instead of karaoke, there's open jams where there's a band playing and you can get up and sing. Yeah. And that's how I really got my start because I'd never been on stage. I wasn't really comfortable singing in front of people. And I forced myself to go do that because I'm like, that's the only way I'm going to learn and get better. Because if you're with really good musicians, which a lot of these bands are at open jams, it you have to get better, you know, because you don't want to go up there and, and do a lousy job. Of course. I mean, that's the best way you have to, you know, you have to play with like good session musicians, good cover bands, whatever. And you have to hone your craft, you know. And the thing is, what I'm wondering then is because, you know, you a lot of people obviously start in the music industry when they're younger did you face some resistance from people in the industry not the musicians themselves but you know record executives and a and r people thinking what you're starting your career now was there a little kind of resistance there well it's funny because i wasn't looking for a record label or anything like that but of course i knew people in the industry and i'd ask their advice and their opinion and right that's the first thing you hear is like uh <laughs> you know you want to start now you're starting yeah, now. But I realized <laughs> early on, you know what? Put that aside. Don't worry what people think. I'm doing this for me, you know, because it's something I really believe. And now even more so as I began to progress in it, I realized it's my purpose in life. And the purpose not being for me to become a big star for my ego. I've realized what I can do with music and the people you can reach with music. You can make people feel great. And I started even doing motivational speaking where I tell people my story that as a mom of two, I decided to leave, you know, the corporate world and follow my dream, which to a lot of people, that's a fantasy that they'd love to do, but they won't do it. And I show them how, look, you know, yeah. when you trust your gut and you just go with it and you give it everything you've got, you're bound to make it a success. Like I'm a musician now full time. I make money. <laughs> I'm able to live. And I'm doing my dream. And that all happened later in life. So it's doable, you know? I mean, yeah, because I, I think what it is, you know, there in lots of industries, there is ageism, you know, and obviously, you know, especially in business, you know, once people get closer to 50, it's getting more difficult. But definitely in the music business, this is the thing. You have to kind of just say, no, no, I don't give a damn. I don't give a fuck. I'm just going to do it because I... I like at this stage, I've nothing to lose. You know, I'm not 21. I'm not I'm not looking for people to tell me if I can do it or not. I know I'm going to do it. And if I fail, it doesn't matter because I'm going to at least be happy that I tried it. And I think that's sometimes just you have to go for it and, and make your dream come true. And even if it doesn't amount to huge record sales or huge tours, if you're happy doing what you're doing, 
you'll always be thankful that you made that decision. Right. You know, and, and going back to what I just said a minute ago, the fact that I'm able to make a career of it and have income from it, I mean, that's a miracle to me, you know, and it, it proves to me that it's doable. And like you're saying, I think, you know, I've learned that you just, there's nothing to lose. You'll only live with regret if you don't. And for me, especially in the music industry, you know, had you asked me when I was younger why I want to do it, it really was more about I want to be famous, I want to be Axl Rose and live that kind of lifestyle. Now I have a different purpose. And my purpose is to inspire other people and show them that, look, whether your dream is becoming a rock star, whether your dream is to open your own business, whatever it is, go do it. That's it. No excuses. I'm able to do something like this, which sounds so crazy to people. Even my kids thought I was nuts you know, when I told them I want to do this. And that, but then they started seeing that, oh my God, mom's doing shows. I, I played in LA in Brazil. You know, I have songs on Sirius XM on the radio. I have, you know, music videos on YouTube that they're like, wow, like this is real. You know, it's not a joke anymore. And even the people, I, I didn't realize I don't have to explain anything to anyone. Just go do it. And when you do it, people will understand and they'll see what you're creating and you don't have to defend yourself ever about anything you do in your life. Yes. Uh, no, you're perfectly right. And I think it's brilliant. Uh, like, I, I think the the funny thing about life is that, you know, when people are younger and they're teenagers and adolescents and then young adults and all this, the thing is they have a lot of self-doubt. But the unfortunate thing is that a lot of middle-aged people and, you know, 30-something, 40-something, so on, who still have dreams have more self-doubt. Because they're thinking, well, it's too late for that now because my life is this. I'm working in a bank. I can't be a rock star. I can't be an actor. But the truth is you can be whatever you want or you can die trying. You know, you can give it your best. It, not everybody's dreams come true, but at least you can say, I did my best. I tried. And if you have that kind of attitude and, you know, don't give a damn what other people say. Just do it for yourself and make those good and bad decisions. I think you can have fun and you can make a career. Well, you learn from everything. You know, I can't imagine had I not done all these things, all the things I would have missed out on, the incredible experiences, the things I've been able to do in just the past three, four years. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, like I was saying, I played a stage in Brazil in a festival. I played the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles, which is like legendary with all the bands that I love. With, with LA Guns. Yes. Yeah. I opened up them there and I mean you know just things like that that's that's crazy and had you told me a few years ago when I was in the Middle East that I was going to do that I'd be like what you know I, I believed it myself so I just think I urge everybody if you have something in your heart that's so strong and it's just burning you've got to do it you know and I've never been happier in my life than I am right now so here's the thing then when you you know when you did start and you know, your main influence was rock kind of and that kind of American rock sound. And then for you later on, because I was reading kind of that there was a transition to country that maybe you weren't so sure about. So how was that whole process? Like, did you have people saying, you know, you'd be an amazing country star. And, you know, was, was that something that you did quite easily? Are you kind of were putting the brakes on a little bit. Yeah, I mean, what happened was I started working with a producer in Los Angeles who I work with now, uh, Brett Wood. We co-write songs together, and he's also my producer, and he plays on a lot of the instruments. The reason I decided to work with him, I was introduced to, to him through a friend of mine, and he's a rock guy. You know, he was in a rock band in the 80s, early 90s. Um, he recorded in Eddie Van Halen's house. 
You know, um, he's worked with Vince Neil of Motley Crue for 10 years. He was his guitarist off and on. He's in a band with Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters, even now. He's also guitarist of Sebastian Bach. And I went, perfect. This guy's my rock guy. We're going to write an amazing rock album. Well, when I went to Los Angeles, I spent two weeks there. And we spent two weeks in the beginning not even writing anything. Just, you know, he would teach me how to focus on your inner voice. And again, the sound and finding your own sound, your own voice. And then he would leave me for a couple of days and say, hey, go write something and just be honest and genuine in it, you know, with the writing. Don't try and be anybody. Just listen to your own voice. And then when I came back to him with some ideas and songs, that's where he went like, this is country. This is not rock. And I went, no, you know, this is not country. I don't listen to country music. He's like, look, and he would play something along with what I'd written. And he goes, this is a country song. And it took a while for me to kind of absorb the idea of possibly doing country. But then I realized he was 100% right. It was. I mean, what was really coming out of me was more country than rock. And so it happened really naturally and organically because a lot of people are like, oh, what a smart decision. And I'm like, it wasn't even a decision. <laughs> it's just what happened, you know, and I'm so happy for it because I found that's really where I belong, you know, a country rock um, because it's not pure country. I do have some songs that are, but I have a little bit more of an edge to it. You know, I have songs like Outlaw, which is like a, it's a rock song more than this country. Yeah, because Outlaw is a very, it, like there is a, some country elements to it, but it's kind of, it's more like, as I said, that American rock. You know, it's like a mixture of middle of the road, American rock and a bit of country and stuff. So I, I think that's great. And, and on different songs, you have different touches. But, you know, I, I've, I'm the same myself. I've released some stuff and I, I kind of go to my, I always say to myself, that song kind of has a country twang to it. And then other songs I'd write that I haven't released yet. I'd be like, you know, I, I feel like there could be a bit of a country album in there. And it's something that's very weird because I'm not a, I've never been a, a country guy. I like some, you know, like Brad Paisley and that kind of stuff. And, you know, and Clint, uh, what's his name, Vince Gill, some of their songs. But I'd never say I've always been a hard rock kind of guy. But sometimes you can't, you know, there's something there that's maybe coming out. And as you get older, maybe you go, okay, I'm just going to let it out. Yeah, you know, you have to go with whatever's coming from you and just be honest and genuine with it. Because I realized afterwards, it all made sense that I grew up listening to country because my mother is a huge country fan. But it never resonated with me that that was the kind of genre of music that I would be writing. But it's only, you know, who knew that later on in life, that's really where I find my comfort. And the more I started being in those environments with other country music artists, I realized I love it because it's more like a family. Whereas rock is a little bit more hard edged, you know, hard living. I'm not that person. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I'm not like, you know, trying to be a badass and whatever. So I love listening to rock music, but I realized that my place is much better suited in country rock. So uh, it's a lot more suitable for myself. Brilliant. And, you know, obviously I was reading about your Billy Ray Cyrus on the plane <laughs> story. That's that's really cool. So you have a great knack of meeting the right people at the right time, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, the irony of that story is that that was at the very time that I was kind of going back and forth with the whole idea of pursuing country. And there I was on a plane going to L.A. to shoot my very first music video. And who's on the plane with me? Billy Ray Cyrus. And we end up chatting and then he said, send me something. I'd love to hear your music. 
So I literally got off the plane. I sent him a message with my music and two hours later he answers back and he goes, this is fantastic. And I'm your new fan. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, if I were ever questioning whether I should do country or not, well, maybe the universe was showing me, here you go. Billy Ray Cyrus is telling you it's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. And it's, it's nice to get those kind of small seal of approvals, you know, that people can give you. And then you went on, um, obviously, and you had a country music festival and everything. That was a great success. And, and you know, for me as well, I think it was a very, like when you said earlier about your um, your kind of strategy coming from the business side as well, I think it was a, a really cool thing. I could be completely wrong yeah. here now, but I think the fact that you organized the, the event yourself um, and you had control over it. I know you were probably working with other people, but I think that was a really clever move because you had the reins of the Bronco and you were basically saying, well, yeah, I can have all these cool artists, but I can be there too, you know, because that's a thing that some artists don't, they have that insecurity where they say, oh, if I organize that event and I have Motley Crue and I have Shania Twain and I have whoever, I can't be in there because I'm not big enough. You have to make yourself big enough, put yourself in the middle. And then people will go, who's this girl or who's this guy? I think that was a really clever move you did. Well, you know, it's interesting because, again, going back to my intention, the reason for doing that to begin with, the whole reason for it was because people were like, we really want to see live music because last summer everything was shut down. There was no concerts, no festivals. And I'm like, surely we can do something, you know, and to wait for someone else to do it. Nobody was doing anything. So what I ended up doing was, you know, I read an article about drive-in festivals happening or concerts happening in the U.S. And I went, well, why don't we do that? And rather than wait for someone to do it, I'm like, why don't I try and put it together? I'd never done anything like that before. But, you know, that taught me so much about once you have a dream and you put it out there and you tell people about it, everybody wants to be a part of that and help. And it's just incredible. Literally in three weeks, the festival was put together and everybody wanted to be a part of it. And it was a huge success. I ended up doing a second one down in Tennessee, you know, just two months later. So we're hoping to do it again this summer. And, you know, it was one of the most incredible things that I've done, not just for me. It wasn't about Susie Corey. You know, it wasn't the Susie Corey Festival. Um, I called it the Love Revolution Festival because I wanted people to know this is about loving each other, supporting each other, the artists being there for each other. We were all the same. Nobody's the star of the show. You know, even on the day of the show, we picked out names out of a box. Who was going to go first, second, third, fourth? Because nobody was going to be, okay, this is the headliner. This is the person after the, you know. So I wanted everybody to be on the same level. And we're all there just for the audience. And it worked really well that way. Yeah. I, yeah. And I mean, it's great. You know, those kind of things, because... You know, not only are you getting everyone together, but you're getting your name out there as well. And you're letting people discover you as well as the other bands. So I think as a marketing move, it's really good. And that's something I want to touch on is your, do you, like, do you think for you, because you had come from the business world a little bit, do you think that you have a different strategy for success in the music industry? I mean, the strategy really comes from, I believe in integrity, honesty, um, working with good people who have the same moral values that I do. And I know that doesn't sound very businesslike, but I think that is so essential to the very core of anything you're going to do in your life. If you really want to have success and you want it to be solid, that's the kind of things you build. So 
that's why for me in a business sense, that's so important to me, you know, to have people who are aligned with my values so that we treat each other well. There's no egos involved. It's not about stardom or anything like that. It has to be for the greater good. So anything that I'm doing has to be because it benefits a lot of people. You know, it's not about just me. And you realize that when you start having that kind of outlook on things, so like the festival, again, I'll repeat, it wasn't about me. What happened was great because all of a sudden I got all this press and, you know, our local television station came out. And so, so it's fantastic. And I'm so thankful for that. But that wasn't the reason I did it. It wasn't because, so, hey, I'm Susie Corey. I'm doing the festival. I wanted to show independent artists like myself because we're not signed to labels. Look what you can do. You don't need someone to do that for you. You can put on your own festival and we can do this, you know, and we did. And so yeah. even to now, I mean, I know people who are signed to labels who have big names. I want to keep it as an independent festival where it's independent artists, because those are the people that need the chance to showcase and have festivals because the larger festivals, you know, they're, they're bringing the bigger stars because obviously they need, you know, ticket sales, not to say I don't want ticket sales, but I think it's very important that we create platforms for independent artists who don't necessarily have the people to give them those kind of, you know, uh, opportunities. So that was the whole thing behind that. Recently, I was talking to a guest and there was there's a big topic in, in Ireland, for example, with the music industry is that for a long time, you know, it's it's mainly male artists that are being played and it's much more difficult for female artists to get played and the ratio is like 20% to 80% or whatever. So in, in Canada, North America and, and America itself, is, is that the same now as well? Do, do you find that radio stations are playing more male artists, even though nowadays there are lots of like Pink, Lady Gaga, there's lots of big stars, but when it comes to independence and smaller artists, is the ratio very different? Um, I don't necessarily would say for independent artists, in country music, it tends to be that way, whereas predominantly male. Having said that, you know, I think it's very important not to focus on that and not to say I'm ignoring it, <laughs> but I think what you focus on expands. So the more you say, well, there's only male, right. there's only, and if that's what I choose to think about, then that's all I'm going to see. So rather than focus on that, what I try and do is just, I do what I'm doing. And I, I go out to program directors. I reach out personally to the radio stations. I've gotten my songs on certain stations. Others you don't because, you know, there's other politics involved. It is what it is. I'm not going to complain about it. I'll just keep trucking along and doing what I do and doing my best to do that. And so, for example, the festival, you know, even on festivals, you'll find most of the time it's male headliners, mainly males playing the festivals. I could have done the opposite where I did an entirely female festival. But I feel that if you really want to show what fairness looks like and what you want it to be like, well, then you've got to be the example of that. And so I tried my best to make sure it was equally split, you know, and not trying to go the exact opposite because then I'm doing exactly what I'm complaining about. You know, this is the biggest problem, obviously, with that, you know, equality. It has to be equal. You know, you cannot say you cannot say, uh, oh, you know, there's been too many men in the business. So now we need to have more women because you're just going down right. the same road. 
you you have to you have to say, look, let's balance it out as best we can. And sometimes it'll be higher in one area, and sometimes it'll be lower in the others. But the point is, yeah, you, you're only just repeating the sins of the father. You're doing the same thing that everybody else did. Yeah, and it's not like you know I did that in the festival, and then I go out and talk about it and say, look, I made it completely fair. Instead, just do it. And whether people recognize that or they don't is irrelevant. But people will start to see, you know, if we create what we want to see in this world, then people will start to see that as the norm. So, you know, I just think the more you focus on something and talk about the negative side of it, the more you're going to see about of that thing. So instead, just let your actions speak for that, you know, rather than talking about just the way you conduct your life and the way you make your decisions, make sure that they align with what you want other people to follow, but you don't have to tell them to do it. Just do it yourself and they see it. No, I understand. You're right. I, I completely agree with you. You have to just yeah. try, you know, make it for everybody. Can I ask you, um, the, is for, you know, from pe- for people in Europe when they look at the American country scene, and obviously then you have the Canadian country scene, is there much of a difference in the scene and in the artists or, you know, do they all kind of blend into one? I mean, there's a lot of similarities. I wouldn't say there's a big difference. A lot of Canadian writers and performers go down to Nashville and work with writers there. So, and there's a lot of Canadians who are down in Nashville who live there. And so a lot of it is very similar. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's a huge difference. I mean, obviously there's artists that also try and break out from the, the kind of mold because there's definitely a very a Nashville type of sound. And a lot of people try and copy that because it's been successful for radio and, you know, for commercially. And I think that's the one thing that I'm not making a conscious effort to avoid that, but I'm just trying to stay true to who I am and not try to necessarily go with a particular songwriting style. I just write what I think is, it's me, you know, and whether that fits that style or not is irrelevant to me because I think the most important thing you have to do as a country artist or any kind of artist is just be who you are. And then you're more likely to create something unique, you know, where it's, yeah, and, and so you stand out, actually, not because you're planning to stand out, but you do just by the fact that you're doing something different than what the majority are doing, you know? Yes, yes. And, you know, I suppose it, this probably is, a, is a, um, a bit of a frustration for Canadian artists sometimes is that people from around the world could hear a band, you know? whether it be a rock band, country band, and they're like, oh my God, this new American band, and they're really cool. And the band, they go, no, no, we're Canadian, you know? Because sometimes you, it, when it comes to music, you don't, you, you maybe can't tell the difference, you know? Like when you look at producers like Bob Rock, he's Canadian, other producers, other great bands, and sometimes people could be saying, oh, I thought they were American. So I'm sure that can be a little frustration. It's not something you should worry about, but I'm sure for artists in the past, They'd be like, no, no, we're Canadian. Yeah, I mean, for me, I really, I know it sounds silly to say, but it makes no difference to me only because I'm such a citizen of the world. You know, I, I'm born in Lebanon. My father's Palestinian. My mother's Lebanese. I lived in Jordan. I've been to almost every continent you can imagine that I, I love the whole entire world. And where I'm from, you know, is irrelevant to any of that. If people like my music, but. I'm good. You can call me, you know, whatever you like. <laughs> Let's look at your, uh, the songwriting, obviously. So when you started songwriting and, 
you know, um, I, I don't know, like, I, I know you're a fabulous singer, but, you know, did you, do you sit down with a guitar or what, like, do you play instruments or how do you get that song out there in your own world before you go to a studio, for example? Or So when I first started writing, which was about four years ago, I didn't play an instrument well enough. So I would just sing, sing into my phone. And I thought that was strange, but I've learned since that that's actually how a lot of artists, you know, not everybody. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that. But again, see, it goes to show you that you just don't put excuses because I could have said, oh, well, I don't play an instrument, so I can't write songs. But I thought, OK, well, I sing so I can just sing it into my phone. That's how I started. Now, only recently did I start to teach myself just basic chords like I wouldn't play in front of people, but I can play enough that I can play the song so that when I send it to my producer, he gets an idea of tempo, you know, the key that it's in and, and so on. So it's helped me with the songwriting to just have a basic knowledge of guitar and, and piano. Very good, yeah. I mean, that's it, yeah, because the more, you know, your voice is the instrument, but the more instruments you can have to kind of accompany it, even if it's like one finger yeah. piano playing, you know, if you can get the melody out there and say, oh, this is where I'm kind of thinking or this is where I'm going. Now, the great thing, obviously, about technology nowadays, I mean, with music memos on the iPhone and, you know, it, it accompanies you. And even for really great musicians, they might not have a guitar or something at hand and they're out jogging and they get an idea and they're like, oh, use music memos. And then you have an idea of what it is. And uh, so it's great. I mean, it's much easier now with technology, isn't it? Oh, for sure. And I'm so thankful for that, you know, because it gives me all these different ways that I can uh, create a song. and be able to communicate it to my producer who I work with. So it's great. Yeah. And, you know, your songwriting style then, you know, when you started out and you were kind of, you were writing kind of what you thought were like rock songs. And then as, you know, Brent, your producer or whatever was kind of saying, that's maybe a country song. So the fact then that you moved into that area and you're, you know, predominant, I don't want to say predominantly country because you're rock and country, but has it changed your songwriting style like are you are you writing different lyrics now more suited to that genre no because the music and the lyrics come together like i've never thought of a melody and then sit down and try and write lyrics to it that sound or something no usually when a song comes to me it comes in my head like i can hear it the words and the music so you know like the got a feeling it was like a feeling got a good good feeling got a Got a feeling, got a good, good feeling, got a, you know, it was in my head, like that, that whole gun. So it's not like I went hearing da, 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 da. No, I got the word. Yeah, yeah. It all came together. So, yeah. And, you know, as well, just even, you know, with your voice, did you find then that your voice changed as well? In like, because obviously you were singing in a slightly different yeah. style. Did you find that your voice changed? Absolutely. Because it's more true to who I am now. You know, I sing more in my own voice. Whereas when I was trying to do the rock, I really was trying to be Axel or, you know, or like a hard rocket. Right. And I realized I'm not, I'm not yeah. that person who yells and screams and big, ah, you know. So yeah, now I'm, now I'm being more who I am. You know, I do have a softer voice and I can have a little bit of a hoarseness in it, but Really, my voice is more like what you just heard. That's not me trying to be anything other than my voice. Your new single is coming out um, on June 18th, Got a Feeling. 
And are you like, what's your plans? Because you have a special guest you're going to bring on, aren't you? Somebody who's really going to rock the boat. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Here's Johnny. He has no axe. There's no axe. Wow. So tell us about Johnny. Who? Nice to meet you, Johnny. Yeah, he's he's the shy, silent type, no? Yeah, he doesn't talk too much, but that's why we, you know, we're a great couple. Um, yeah, it's, you know, uh, is it purely is it purely platonic or a professional relationship? Or I mean, I don't it? know. I'm starting to have feelings, but he really doesn't share his feelings, so I don't know where he's at. But you know, we'll see where this. <laughs> Maybe this is a John and Yoko story, no? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, this one, that was kind of a joke for a music video for God of Feeling. Um, I was telling you earlier that I had this funny idea where we're under lockdown in Ontario. And so I thought, well, why don't I make a video where we're kind of poking fun at that and the whole TikTok phenomenon, you know, of um, people becoming TikTok stars. So I was going to order this doll and he's going to become my boyfriend and we're going to blow up on TikTok. And so I made this really funny music video, but then even after we... Johnny blew up quicker than you did. He did, yeah, but I blew him up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I decided after we made the music video to just keep it going. I thought that would be funny. And I ended up going to Los Angeles to record a couple of songs and to Nashville. And I took him with me in the suitcase and it was hilarious. I take him to the beach. I took him to restaurants and I got all this footage that, you know, I've been using on social media to introduce Johnny to everybody. It's become something quite funny, and people are thinking, you know, it's 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 really. I, you know, I have to say this, and you're going to kill me for this, but the fact you worked in the aviation industry, okay, and Johnny reminds me of a famous character from a famous comedy. Do you know the movie I'm talking about? I'm trying to think, but no, I don't know. With the movie with Leslie Nielsen, Airplane. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's a very famous scene in that movie. Where the co-pilot is a blow-up doll. Oh, right. Oh, my God. I <laughs> yes. So I think that has to be a next video. That has to, you have to run along with something like that because Johnny looks, actually, the more I look at him with his lovely Burt Reynolds tash, he looks like he could be a pilot. <laughs> oh, he could be anything. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's brilliant. And does he have a last name? Is he Canadian, American, or wh where's his country of origin? It's Johnny Toronto, because he was born here. <laughs> okay, but maybe he has a Made in Taiwan sticker somewhere. Well, I'm not going to check. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Johnny's birthmark, you know? <laughs> Tell me, so, you know, now when you're doing promotional work for the new single, are you like, oh, I forgot Johnny. I have to get Johnny. You know, you're probably in the car going, I fucking left Johnny in the house. You know, how do you, <laughs> Johnny is like part and parcel of it. Yeah, no, you know, I've been having fun with it. And it's so weird how it's become something normal for me that I put him in the car and take him along with me to wherever I'm going. So, you know, in the beginning, I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And then once I got over that myself, people have gotten used to it too. I'll walk into a place and they're just like, in the beginning, they're shocked. And then, they start laughing. And I just think it's great if you can make people laugh. You know, we've been so serious for the past year and a half with everything going on that I think people need this. They need to lighten up and we need to stop taking ourselves so seriously and just laugh a little. So this fix all that. <laughs> I imagine, you know, if you've been out on the town or 
on a night out or you're do, not, not I don't mean out but working or promoting something and all of a sudden you see like a bachelorette party and there's another Johnny over there you're like oh my god we have to go over we have to join these girls well that's what happened in Nashville I went to a bar and there was a girl blow up doll in the bar and they thought like this is crazy what are the odds that somebody walks in here with a male doll so we put them together and I did this whole story on social media that he was cheating on me with this other doll and yeah, but he's. <laughs> that was Johnny said. I want an open relationship. I'm into rubber dolls. <laughs> no, but he's since apologized, and you know we're we're doing well. That's good, but <laughs> but I can see by the look in his eye, you know he's a he's a player, you know. Well, look at those beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and his hair, his hair is so seventies. It's just amazing. Yeah, and it's just so perfect. It doesn't move. <laughs> Better than you know. So obviously with the new single, you know, um, you're you're releasing on June the 18th. And wait, is there a video coming out at the same time or a few, week later or a few weeks later? So I'm going to wait about a week later. The video will come out just to give people a chance to have a listen, you know, through the streaming service. And yeah, a week later, he's the star of the video. So I think it's going to be very funny for everyone. You know, again, it's just us being TikTok stars and doing some funny things together. And so I think, again, it's just all in good fun and trying to make people laugh and hopefully people will find it as funny as I did making it. <laughs> this whole thing could be kind of like that, um, what do you call the, the born, what's that born to be a star? The oh, Lady yeah, Gaga yeah. movie, you know? Yeah. yeah because yeah, I, I, the thing is Johnny could, you know, become the real star and you'll be like, worst decision I ever made picking up this guy. Well, as long as he keeps me along with him, you know, it takes me along on the ride. I'm good with that. I'm all right. Sign a prenup or something so he doesn't take all your money, right. you know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us then as regards um, touring and, you know, like is there gigs or virtual gigs or what kind of things have you planned for the next few months? Yeah, I mean, I try and do one a month at least with the virtual stuff. And I do have a festival planned um, here in Ontario in September, and I have something else that I'm doing in July. So, you know, slowly as things are starting to open up, I heard that this Friday they're going to announce that things are going to start opening up a little. So now I'm starting to get the phone calls about shows and stuff. So it's fantastic. But I had a promoter contact me also from, um, from Florida. And so he's looking to put together some shows down in the U.S. So I'm excited about that. And, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll get down to the U.S. as well and do some shows there. What was I going to say to you? So, so for you now, you know, for in the next year or two ahead, um, have you kind of any other ambitions or aspirations? Would you like to go back doing radio, TV or anything? Or are you going to focus exclusively on the music? I mean, I'm open to everything. I think you have to be open like that in life and just whatever comes your way, go with it. I never say no. So, you know, like the radio show thing. I've never studied radio. I didn't know how, you know, how to do it as a trained person. But when I was offered to do it, I said, yeah. And I said, I'll figure it out. And I did. So I think anything in life, when the opportunity comes, do it. You know, if I was offered an acting opportunity, uh, whatever it may be. I have a lot of people kind of tell me they would like me to manage them. And I find that interesting. And I think, okay, well, maybe there's a reason why that's happening in my life that maybe that's where I'll end up doing. I did start my own record label. Of course, I'm the only one on my record label right now because I'm trying to figure out how the business works. Once I figure it out, 
then I would get other artists. But I want to make sure that I know what I'm doing before I get other artists on board. You know, I want to say thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure chatting to you and John. He's very quiet, but maybe, you know, he needs a, 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 he needs a fireball or some whiskey or something to get him going, you know, something to get some words out of him, you know. He's just trying not to steal my thunder. He knows it's my interview. Yes, 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 yes. He, he's, he, his lips are so unshut. <laughs> So, listen, you know, um, Susie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, so thanks again for coming on. We wish you the best with the new single, Got a Feeling, out on June 18th on all major platforms, yes? Yeah, all the streaming platforms, and I'll be all over social media. So you can catch me on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you name it. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. And, you know, it's been a pleasure and we will love, we'd love to talk to you in the future again. And I'm sure your career will get bigger and bigger. And, you know, we'll be here like, oh, you know, she was here. She was here. The, the global megastar was here once. Yes, this megastar and that megastar. <laughs> and that megastar. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, listen, thanks very much and take care of yourself. And we will talk to you again. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye, Johnny. Bye-bye. <laughs> Susie Corey, everybody. Bye. Okay. Thank you very much, Susie. Really enjoyed that interview. And uh, thank you for letting us into your world of the country Canadian rock star. So it's really good. And we hope you and Johnny are very happy together. And we hope that, you know, the success doesn't split up your wonderful marriage. Or maybe you're not married, but your relationship anyway. You know, we hope Johnny looks after you and you look after him. But thanks again. We really enjoyed the interview and we look forward to what you release in the future and best of luck with everything. Okay, moving on to next week's guest. Cahal Keeney is a professional Irish dancer and is currently dancing with Lord of the Dance. Cahal Keeney started dancing at the age of five with the Hessian School of Irish Dancing in Galway. Cahal has won two World Irish Dancing Championship titles, along with multiple All-Ireland, North American, British National and Great Britain titles. Cahal had the privilege of joining Lord of the Dance Feet of Flames in Taiwan 2012 and has been a part of the show ever since. Cahal currently performs the role of the Lord in Lord of the Dance Dangerous Games. And, you know, we hope you tune in and we hope you enjoy it. And it's going to be an amazing conversation. And as always, you know, we'd like you to be here to listen to it. So thanks again for listening in. And we hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we will talk to you soon. And look after yourself and take care. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper Podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.